0: Good morning, church. How are you out there? Hey, my name is Jeremy Olam. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at Redemption Gilbert, and I'm happy to be able to uh, lead us through this next section in our study in the book of Ephesians. <laughs> All right. Oh, Mary you told me you were going to do that. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, I know many of you know me, but for those of you that don't, I help oversee adult discipleship here at the church with uh, Brian, who led you in communion a few minutes ago. My wife Rachel and I have been here at the church for 18 years this month, and uh, we have two boys, Asher, who is 10, and Beck, who is 6, and uh, I love being a dad. It is, um, it's is—it's really fun, and we're in a really great window of life right now with our boys. They're, they're old enough to have real conversations with and to have fun with, but they're not so old that they've become jaded and don't think I'm cool anymore, you know, we're I'm a little scared of that, but right now, we're in a really good season. Um, my son, Asher, he, he in particular is really fun. He's going into fifth grade. He started doing this thing that's become a little bit of a running joke in our family. Uh, when we have a quiet moment together, either in the car or particularly right before bed, he'll, he'll pull me, either me or my wife, Rachel, close, and he'll look us straight in the eye And then he'll quietly say, in in the most earnest tones possible, just admit it. I'm your favorite. Just say it out loud. Just tell me I'm your favorite. And And then a big smile spreads across his face, and he tilts his head to the side, trying to look cute. And he says, come on, just say it. You know it's true. I know it's true. Just tell me. And then we laugh, and I tell him, no, I don't have a favorite. I love you and your brother equally. It's a, it's a cute thing, and, but I think I understand it. Everyone wants to be the favorite, right? As a kid, you want the security of knowing uh, that you are loved and that when your parent looks at you and knows you completely, that they not only love you, but they love you the most. It's this desire for special attention, to be known and loved in a way that's individual to him. I also think, though, that somewhere deep inside him, uh, there's a reassuring comfort that he finds in knowing that I tell him no, that his place is secure and that it's not up for debate or competition. See, the hard part about winning the lottery of the favorite is that now you have to live up to the position and hope you don't do anything to lose that spot. His place in our family and in my heart is secure just because... He's my son, not because he's done anything special or extra awesome that's earned him the top spot. It's important for him to understand that although his parents don't have favorites, they do love him in an understanding and individual way, or at least that's what we strive for as his parents. See, lazy parenting is the parenting of favorites. Favorites. When a parent allows a favorite in their life, they're directing their parenting in a a selfish and lazy way. Favorites come naturally because the favorite is always centered around me. Why would a parent have a favorite? Well, because this one's easy for me. Because this one likes me. Because this one is like me. Because this one is compliant. Because this is the one that I can live my failed dreams through. Right? I get it but we have to see that having favorites is born out of selfishness and laziness. It's more about me than it is about the kid. There's a step up from that is the easy parenting of sameness. This is the parenting that rejects the idea of favorites, but instead says that my parenting direction, correction, and love is, is a program or a formula. I have figured out how I want to parent, and I will apply that uniformly like peanut butter all over my family. Right? Rather than shaping my parenting and my care around the child that I like most or the one that's easiest for me, I've planned my parenting style and then I kind of end up forcing my kids to manage or modulate their lives around my parenting. The challenge of it is that it requires a consistent response, yes, but it doesn't really have to be a thoughtful response, right? A good robot could parent this way. You just push, play, rinse and repeat. Individualized parenting is the next level of parenting. It is the most difficult. It is the most costly. It requires me to lay aside the selfishness and self-serving shape of favorites, but it also requires me to sacrifice to the tune of energy and time and care the easy parenting of sameness. Individualized parenting dives into the deep understanding of the child. You have to be willing to know them intimately, perceive what motivates them, what fears drive them, what carrots they will chase, what the shape of their life looks like and where that shape will lead them into danger and where that shape should be encouraged for their flourishing and their growth. Paul, in The opening of chapter 4 is dealing with the challenge of the church in the real world. A real world church made up of Jewish believers with a long history in the story of Yahweh crashing together with a Greco-Roman culture and people of Ephesus who have a long history of being outside of the story of God's plan for redemption. The question is, what kind of relationship do we have with this heavenly father And that's the issue that he's addressing here in chapter four. What kind of parenting style has God chosen? The Israelites are hoping, like Asher, to hear God say, You're my favorite. And they're saying, Come on, we all know it's true. Just admit it. Just tell us we're the favorite. Yeah, you love them, but you love us the most. And Paul's clear that that is not the case. And he lays out, as we heard last week in verses 4 through 6, that the church is designed for unity, brought together in one body, by one spirit, to one hope, serving one Lord through one faith, entered through one baptism into one family, under one God and one Father. He is overwhelmingly clear that he is not the parent of favorites. So, naturally, the church could assume that Based on this argument, God has chosen the parenting of sameness. After all, he's grand and he's wise and he's other. He's so separate and so powerful that it makes sense that we would have to approach him on his terms, play by his rules. After all, the fact that he acknowledges us at all should be enough. But in verse 7, where we're going to start today, Paul reveals in one sentence the kind of parenting that the Father has directed to us. It is succinct, but the implications behind it are massive. You can open your Bible to Ephesians chapter 4 starting in verse 7 where the apostle Paul says this, but to each one of us grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. Grace has not been given out to Christians as some sort of a generic starter kit. It's not like a sign-up bonus for a credit card, you know, follow Jesus and get 50,000 miles to your airline of choice. Uh, It's easy to joke about, but I think we often get drawn into seeing the grace of God as this kind of general welcome gift for Christians. It's great, we're glad to have it, but we often talk about it in a way that makes it a little impersonal. And what Paul is saying here in verse 7 is that God has chosen individualized parenting for his people, and he does it through grace distributed to each one of us allocated, assigned, handed out by Christ himself as a personal gift for you. This grace goes beyond the incredible gift of grace that brings us from death to life, the grace that awakens a heart of stone and kindles the fire of faith. This is the grace for living into the missional calling of that awakened people. What does it take to become the faithful people of God while we're still wandering in this wilderness? Grace. Grace given to us in the exact, thoughtful, loving measure of Jesus. This notion is incredible. The Savior knows you better than I know my Son. He knows your failures. He knows your victories. He knows your hurts, your pains, your triumphs, your weaknesses, your strengths, your fears, your pride. He knows the way you have hurt others, and he knows the way others have hurt you. He knows what you have lost, and he knows what you have gained. He has an intimate, all-encompassing knowledge of you and your very being, and he has meted out a gift of grace made for you. This this is incredible. The overwhelming implication of that is that you will never be in a situation in your life where you lack the required grace to deal with it. You will never be short of the grace required to resist sin. You will never be short of the grace required to love your neighbor as yourself. You will never be short of the grace required to forgive your enemy you will never be short of the grace required to serve God with your whole heart, mind and body. And you might be saying like, "Wait, okay, wait a second, that sounds really good. But let's be honest here, uh, I fail to resist sin all the time. I can barely keep myself from strangling my enemies with my bare hands, much less forgiving them, right? This, this sounds great, but it's not realistic in my experience, so what's going on? And I think it's a great reminder that having access to the grace required to live this kind of life is not the same as accessing this grace to live this kind of life. One of the biggest problems that the modern American church struggles with is that we view the gift of grace as a private and personal gift, The gift of grace in your life is not an internal reality walled off from everyone else. In fact, as we're going to see in the remainder of this section of scripture this morning, one of the biggest ways that Christ gifts you grace is through the external reality of the church. All right, let's get back to the text. Now, I'll warn you, the next few verses comprise kind of an Odd section here. It's strangely worded. It feels a little bit out of left field, but we're going to read it and then we'll do a little bit of work. And I think it'll make sense why it's here. Let's start in verse 8. Paul says this This is why it says, When he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. See, I wasn't lying. It was, it's a little like, what? <laughs> okay, Paul here is quoting uh, a hymn from the Psalms, Psalm 68 to be exact. He's quoting a song that was written by King David about what God would do to his enemies when he comes in victory. Israel's been waiting for God to return for thousands of years as a conquering king to defeat his enemies and to ret- return to his people in glory with the treasures of victory In hand, it's a it's a quote from this inspiring vision of the future of justification for God's people. Now, if we we want a picture of God giving gifts of grace that are personal and shaped for the person, we don't have to look very much further than the Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter to the church in Ephesus. Ephesus. You have to remember that Paul was raised in a deeply religious, pious, scholarly home in the city of Tarsus on the Mediterranean. Coast. He was raised in the tradition of the Pharisees. He would have been an orthodox, conservative man. Paul describes himself as a Hebrew of Hebrews, the upper echelons of this group in Israel. But what sets Paul apart from all the people that would fit into that category is that Paul was born a Roman citizen. He was born and spent his youngest formative years in the Greco-Roman world, He later went to Jerusalem and trained under one of the most influential rabbis of the day. He learned Hebrew, but that was his second language. Greek was his first. Paul was a man uniquely positioned with one foot in two worlds, and this is the guy that God has chosen to carry the gospel from the Jewish world into the Greco-Roman one. See, the grace that Paul was given was not just simply one of salvation, but one that continued into his ministry and was chosen and shaped by his unique life and upbringing. And the brilliance of that is on display right here in this text because Paul is uniquely positioned to be able to weave together something that's really only possible because of who he was. It might not be surprising that a Jewish scholar would reach deep into the Israelite tradition uh, and would quote a central text of Israel to illustrate what was happening here, but he does it in a way that also hearkens to a familiar image in the wider Greco-Roman world. It's a powerful dual illustration. See, in the Roman world, the borders of the empire, which were vast and large, were defended and expanded through military conquest. And when a military leader uh, accomplished a particularly spectacular act of military dominance, a massive parade of honor would be organized and held for that conquering general. The elaborate parade would be planned, and that victorious one would ride a chariot into and through the streets of Rome. He would be granted a crown and a purple robe and he would be considered near divine by the people because of the power and the gifts that the gods had bestowed upon him to achieve this incredible victory. And then behind his chariot would come on foot in chains the defeated leadership of the country that had just been overcome. And those, those leaders would be publicly shamed, mocked, and jeered by the crowd to remind them that the power that they once claimed over the world was now gone and had come to an end. And then behind them would come the spoils of war that the victor brought back to the people. The general comes not just bearing this uh, pride of increasing territory and dominance in the world, but he comes with a gift for the nation. And these were often huge and impressive bounties. In fact, historians tell us that when uh, Octavian came back from his defeat of the Egyptian empire in the previous century, he brought so much wealth back that he impacted the entirety of the Roman economy. Historians say that interest rates plunged to near zero and land prices soared as the vast riches completely reordered the structure of their entire economy. This is the image that Paul's drawing from. To the Jewish mind... He's calling upon this long-promised and awaited victory of God on behalf of his people, while in the same illustration, he's calling to mind in the Greco-Roman audience a picture of Roman military victory. He reminds them of the story that the church is built on, of Jesus returning from his earthly life, ascending back to his throne above all things, victorious, hailed as our champion, bringing behind him the competing powers of Satan's sin and death in chains to be publicly shamed by the church. And then behind him, the vast riches of the battle brought to be given out to the church. Riches so grand that they reorder our very value systems. Now, obviously, the kind of victory that Jesus achieves is very different than the one that anyone expected. He certainly didn't return with cash and gold in hand. So what kind of gifts does he come bringing for the church? Well, the first three chapters of Ephesians, he has built a gift list. He brings adoption, forgiveness, redemption, an inheritance, unity, salvation, life, mercy, kindness, grace to each believer. And then here in verse 11, he continues with another gift or set of gifts that he's given to the church. In verse 11, he says this, "'So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ.'" Paul says that one of the main gifts given to the church is the leadership of the church. That those people who have been given unique individual gifts and called into leadership are a communal gift for the entire church. I'll be be a little honest. It feels a little weird to stand up here and tell you what a great gift I am to you. Please appreciate me, everyone. God has given you a gift. Yes, I know. It feels a little weird. But that's clearly what Paul is saying, and we can't avoid it, right? Paul is saying... Uh, that church leadership is a gift to the church because God's intention with his people is not simply to save them from the consequences of their sin, but instead to arrange them into a community that serves as a witness to the world. And the primary role of church leadership is not just to run the day-to-day operations of the church, but to be at work investing in the people of the church to grow the church and their works of service and that those works of service are the means in which we achieve unity and maturity. In 1956, one of the greatest basketball players of all time, Bill Russell, was signed by the Boston Celtics. In his first season with the team, he led the franchise to their very first championship, and over the next ten years of his career, he led that team to nine championships, including eight in a row, and the one championship that he lost, they lost in the finals. After his 10th season, Red Auerbach, who was the legendary coach of the Celtics, uh, retired, and he eventually named Bill Russell as the first African-American head coach in the history of the NBA. And, and Bill Russell became something that's absolutely unheard of in today's NBA culture. He became, became a player coach. And for the next three seasons, he, he not only led and coached the team, he was the star player on the team and led them to another two championships. Bill Russell played 13 seasons and won 11 NBA championships. He is undoubtedly one of the greatest players ever to step foot on the court. And a lot of times, I think that Christians view their role in the church a little bit like a Celtics fan in those first 10 years of Bill Russell's. Run right, maybe you were on it. You were part of a team that was a little bit of an underdog, but you're huge fans of the Christian team. You never miss a game, you own all the t shirts, you know the stats of every key player, you subscribe to all the podcasts, you listen to all the interviews. You see, maybe they see their role as supporting the team, cheering like crazy for the church to win the battle. But, like an NBA fan. You don't ever step foot on the court and actually play the game. After all the games played by professionals, you buy the tickets so the team can pay professionals to play the game on your behalf. And Paul here is pushing back hard on that view of the church. Professionals aren't the ones playing the game while everyone else simply watches and cheers and encourages. Instead, every Christian is a player on the court. Church leadership is not set aside to play the game for you. Instead, they play the role of the player coach. They're responsible for helping lead the church while they play the same game alongside the church. And the stands aren't filled with Christians cheering for professionals. Instead, the stand is filled with the watching world that surrounds you. The crowd is made up of your colleagues and your friends and your neighbors and your family, all watching the church play out the mission of God on the court of life. The question that this has to lead us to is, how do we know if we're actually playing the game as it was meant to be played? How do we know if we're winning? Well, Paul, fortunately, gives us a picture of that in verse 14. Here's what he says. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Every fall, my family uh, gets the opportunity to go out to San Clemente, California for a week, uh, right around fall break. We split the cost of a place with our good friends, Brett and Rhonda, and we do what every good Phoenician does when it's hot in Phoenix. We just hang out and chill, right? Um, We don't make plans. We post up on the beach, and we usually participate in one of our favorite activities, boogie boarding. And I love to take the boys out and help them catch waves. And Rachel and I, will get to go out together and we'll catch some waves. But it gets real when Brett and I get a chance to get out there because we can go deep and we can catch the big waves. Now, in my mind, I am some sort of boarding legend out there. But in reality, I'm a kind of lumpy 40-year-old guy who grew up on a farm in North Dakota. Um, I'm not that great in the water. And the, the always constant looming threat while I'm out there is that I am more likely to get totally dumped on by a wave than I am to catch a wave. And when a six-foot wave lands on top of your head and smashes you into the ocean floor and tumbles you and drags you in the undertow, uh, it's a scary, humbling, and distracting, let's call it, uh, activity activity. The moment when I finally gather my wits and figure out which end is up and get my feet under me and push my head up through the water and take a deep breath, I've got one thing on my mind. Where's the next wave? (laughs) That's immediately what I'm thinking. Because if one wave really knocks you for a loop, when you get your feet under you and the next thing that happens is another big wave landing on you, it's over. I always know I have enough time out there until I get hit by two waves in a row and then I'm going to drag myself like a beached whale up onto the sand and thank God that I survived. Nothing puts an end to my dreams of being a professional bodyboarder faster than being tossed by the waves. They take me right out of the game that I was out there to play. I cannot concentrate on catching a wave when all I'm trying to do is survive. And Paul sees the church in its immature state and he says, You're a lot like that. We're like children being tossed by waves. We're constantly being harassed and blown about by every new idea and thing that comes our way, by every YouTube conspiracy theory, by every fake fake, uh, Facebook news story, by every cable news talking head, by every health study that tells you about the new superfood that will save your life, and then next week tells you that food will actually kill you. Sorry about that. Now, it feels like when we read this section of scripture, we immediately go to doctrinal teaching, we think of bad theology, and of course, that's part of what Paul is talking about here, but I think the place that the church needs to be most concerned is the, about the supposed wisdom of our cultural waves, of the wind that blows through our media that I see the church being pushed around by. Everybody knows the old, uh, I stole your nose trick, right? You guys know that trick? I mean, part of what makes that trick so brilliant is it's so simple and so obvious what's happening, but when you do it to a two- or a three-year-old, it's like, mind-blowing, that guy stole my nose! Dad, aren't you going to do something about it? And we all giggle, because for everyone watching, it's so cute and so obvious, and they are so gullible. How could they have even fallen for it? How is it that the church falls for such obvious tricks? We get together as Christians and we tell each other in the most earnest of tones that our identity isn't found in what people think of us, but by our acceptance by Christ. We tell each other that money doesn't define us, but that God's people are free to be generous because God has been so generous to us. We tell each other that fidelity and commitment to marriage is a reflection of God's commitment to his people. We tell each other that forgiveness and love is the way of healing because Christ loved and forgave us. And then we leave and we stress out about how everyone perceives us and we make decisions driven almost exclusively about how they make us look. We spend more money than we have, we hoard money that isn't ours, we buy a bigger house just because we can, we quit on marriages, we hold grudges, we speak harshly, and we cut people out of our lives. These things aren't driven solely out of the hearts of people, independent of influence. These are the things that come from the wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Our cultural waves that toss us back and forth. The sin patterns of the church, of you and of me, are reinforced by the powers that influence and run our culture. And the picture that Paul says he wants to see the church avoiding is that picture. He says the maturity looks like being wise and unified in the church. It looks like a people of service building each other up. It looks like a people being able to see the waves and to feel the wind and to be able to stand against the cunning and crafty schemes of the culture. We should be able to look the world straight in the eyes and say, you didn't take my nose. Are you kidding? That trick is lame, and I can see right through it. Paul has a realistic view of what the church looks like in its natural state, He knows us. He knows people. Just look at the inverse of his description of what he hopes the church will look like. He knows where we're coming from because naturally, apart from grace, we are ill-equipped, disunified, ignorant, immature, childish, easily tossed about, and gullible. It's not super encouraging when you look at that list. But the good news is that God does not intend his church to stay in that state. He died not only to rescue us from the penalty of our sins, but from the power of sin. He returned in victory with great gifts of grace in hand to grow his church into something spectacular, something unusual, something beautiful. We claim a victorious Christ who triumphed over the spiritual powers of the universe and is reigning above all of creation and fills the entire cosmos with his glory and his power, how is that reality proclaimed in more than words when the church lives as if that reality is true and reorders their lives and priorities and value structures to live that way? And he has given us every tool that we required to live that kind of life. He has given you a gift of individualized and personal grace, a gift made for you to flourish and to grow and to mature in. And at the same time, he has given you the gift of this community. These people are part of God's plan for your maturity and growth, and you are part of his plan for them. Your gift of grace does not stand apart from the gifts of grace of the people that God has sovereignly placed in this place, in this community next to you and you can delve deeper into your maturity and into your growth as you press into community rely on the grace of your christian neighbor to help you and be generous with the grace you've been given to help them grow in maturity god has also given the church the gift of the grace empowered leadership not for the purpose of leaders serving themselves or building themselves up, but for the purpose of laying down their lives in joint service alongside the congregation, to stand alongside the church, bringing encouragement and teaching and wisdom as we pursue maturity and unity in faith together. A part of the influence of the waves and the winds that Paul wants us to avoid circles around the topic of leadership. We've been conditioned and taught to be wary of leadership. We live in a culture that teaches the way of individuality and autonomy, the way of personal leadership. And those in positions of leadership, frankly, have done little to make that seem like unwise advice as they use their leadership to manipulate people and use them for their advantage. We even see that kind of leadership in the church. We're being called as leaders to push against the waves that entice leadership to make it about being served or about controlling power, but instead, to use the gift of leadership towards a path of service and love for the church. And the congregation is being called to push against the winds that entice the church to reject the oversight of leadership and the direction of leadership, but instead see it as what it is, a gift from God that he's given the church to help shape and lead it. Living this kind of self-controlled, steady, mature, submitting, serving, self-sacrificing way is the call of the church. And in this kind of life, we proudly proclaim the truth that Jesus reigns in victory. In this life, the church sets itself apart as a people over which the cunning and crafty winds and waves of worldly wisdom no longer hold sway. In this kind of life, we announce to the competing powers of the world that Christ is king, and here in this place, they've been defeated. The grace and gifts required for this kind of life were claimed by Jesus in his death. They were gathered by Jesus in his resurrection, and he has given the church every gift and grace required to live this kind of life as we press into maturity together as God's gathered people. Let's pray that God would help us make that reality this week. God, we come before you and we are so grateful for the gifts that you have given us. God, for the grace that saved us and for the grace that empowers us for a life that you have called us to. God, we admit that we are easily tossed to and fro by the waves of the world and we, we pray that we would push into the wisdom and grace you have given to us in the church to be able to stand against it. God, we want to be a witness, a faithful one to the world. We pray that through the work of the Holy Spirit in this place, we would change. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.